Hey, welcome to the Meeple Serum Show. Uh, sorry there's no intro, but when Daryl's not here, I don't bother with that stuff. Well, you know, because, well, it, it takes time. And that's not really why. It's just because nobody actually knows how to do the uh, voiceover while I'm doing the video stuff um, well. So when Daryl's here, we kind of got it down to a, a fine science, I guess, or more of an art, really, because uh, sometimes I mess up on my end like I did last week. Anyways, we're here today on the Meeple Serum Show chatting with Jesse Wright, who is a guy I co-design with a heck of a lot. He's also got some solo stuff under his belt and all sorts of cool stuff that he does, but I'll let him introduce himself in a bit. He's been on the show before. Um, and then uh, Chris Chung should be showing up at some point. He's having some technical difficulties, but you know, he's Asian, so maybe he'll figure them out. I don't, I don't know. Uh, Jesse, what's going on? Hi, I'm Jesse. This is my dog, Tita. She has some serious opinions about game design. Um, she might help us out a little today. Is that Tita actually growling? Yeah, that's Tita growling. Oh, I thought that was Talon. No. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't see Kita's mouth moving, so I think she's like some kind of ventriloquist dog. <laughs> she is a little bit, um, little little voice that can carry far. Yeah. So um, I've I've been on the show before. I was actually on the pilot. Um, that may never have been aired. Uh, but, it really uh, wasn't. Nobody deserves <laughs> to see that crap. Um, when we learned about all those kinds of technical difficulties, you and Daryl have made into a fine art. Um, I do a lot of solo design and also a lot of co-design uh, with Sen, which has been a consequence of nearby proximity because I've been playtesting with him for like the last five years now. Um, that, folks, is how long it takes to get a PhD. No, that is how long people think it takes to get a PhD. Realistically, <laughs> it should take seven or eight, but they don't fund you long enough for that to happen. So you crank out something that's passable and get out of there. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, okay, so we're talking about balance, and um, we're going to talk about mechanical, mathematical styles of balance first. Oh, there's Chris. Maybe he'll actually show up this time. Um, not necessarily life balance, which is something else that I think you know Jesse has to go through right now as he's finishing up his dissertation and me with everything else. But um, you know, we're going to talk about mechanical, numerical, statistical type of balance. And we have the lines open on uh, the Google Hangouts YouTube chat. So if you're on there, just ask us any questions that you have about that kind of stuff, and we'll be more than happy to answer them. Um, we might get some other people jumping in on the feed, as we kind of often do, um, when Chris ever gets here, when we can see him. Here, let's look at him. That's what he looks like right now. Oh, that's him playing Villa Paletti with me. And Chris Cormier, that's funny. Uh, anyways, so Jesse, um, let's talk about balance. Uh, let's talk about balance from a very broad, top-down perspective first. What is balance to you? What does it mean? Uh, to me, balance is primarily uh, actually about feeling. Um, I, I think of a game as balanced when it feels like uh, the outcome was fair um, or an... an, an uh, an interaction between players is balanced when it when it feels like it's fair. So you get to the end of the game, and you don't turn and look at the game system and say, oh, it's because of this and this and this that you won, right? You can look at your opponent and say, yeah, it was you, and we had a fair match the whole way through. OK, so it, from that definition, is any game that involves luck intrinsically unbalanced? No, because uh, uh, if the luck is um, evenly distributed. If both players are subject to the same 
forms of luck than, or, or and the same probabilities, you're dealing with the same luck, then no, it's not imbalanced. Like Star Wars Destiny is not imbalanced just because it uses dice and you might roll better than me. Um, it's just that, you know, that's part of the game and part of the strategy of the game and the tactics of the game is accounting for those uh, sources of variance. But we both have to deal with it. Now, a game where, uh, for some reason, you had to deal with dice rolls to get resources, and I just got piles of resources because um, my that's you know what my faction does. That might have the potential to be imbalanced just because you have a, a deterministic uh, factor that I don't. But okay, anyway. so in that regard, is vast unbalanced. Well, see, it's, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> I haven't actually played enough of Vast to account for whether or not it's balanced. Um, I know that when you get to the end of the game, it does feel like, you know, it was fair. It doesn't feel like one side has an advantage over the other. Um, and it's also an asymmetrical game. Sometimes competitive games, interestingly enough, uh, can be balanced by social factors. So this is the sort of like claim to fame of Cosmic Encounter, right? Yeah. Uh, the game itself mechanically is unfair, but because it allows players to needle each other and gang up on each other, it becomes balanced in the play um, because of the social factors that come in and take the mechanical imbalances that are a central part of the system. Um, and then players can sort it out between themselves to make the outcome feel fair. Okay, and I was talking about that. This is actually sort of why this came up. Was a that you had said, "Hey, balance could be a whole show," and said, so, "Sure, why not? Mm. Let's do it." And then uh, on a forum, somebody asked about Sushi Go, and said, "How do you balance a deck of cards like Sushi Go?" And my first response was, "Well, I mean, numerically, there are different scoring methods, and it's really kind of easy. If something has a low volume of opportunity to get it, it should be a high value, and vice versa." But then I also went into the social factors of, well, you know, you can spite draft something just to prevent somebody from getting, you know, their full set of dumplings, let's say, because dumplings is, is grow on a triangular scale. Um, and so I'm not going to let you get your fourth or fifth dumpling. I'm going to take that for just like easily one point instead of something else where if you can evaluate it quickly, that's fair. Um, and so... I also think that there's a different type of balance when you're looking at balance within a set and then balance from the whole game perspective. Yeah. What, are your, what are your thoughts on that kind of statement? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking when you were talking about Sushi Go, right? When I was defining balance as a feeling of fairness, I was thinking about balance of, the over, of an overall game, like the whole thing uh, from start to finish. But you can also talk about balance within, within specific mechanics. You can ask whether or not you know, this mechanic is balanced. And this is where you and I have gotten into discussions before about how to distribute numbers within cards when we're oh, designing yeah, sure. a game, right? <laughs> um, whether or not we should start from a point of mathematical balance or my preference to start from a point of mathematical imbalance because I want to see what happens. I usually want to see what happens when you start from, a, I, I like to start from an intentionally broken design and try to fix it. Um, that's just some weird feature of my brain. Or, um, or, or it could be a bug. A bug, yeah, I think of it as a feature. Right. Um, <laughs> it's my brain, I can't change it. Uh, and so, I mean, I think it's really important when you're talking about balance to both identify the boundaries of what you're asking about the balance of. So is it the whole game? Are you concerned about the game from start to finish? Um, in which case you have to take into account everything that's involved in that, including the social dimensions. Um, 
or if you're talking about a specific mechanism in the game or a part of the game, like the scoring distribution in Sushi Go, um, maybe you're just interested in whether or not the different uh, options are competitive with each other from the break, from your first hand of cards, right? You want to make that a tough choice. Right. And so you want to make sure that they're balanced. You don't want things that are strictly worse in the long run. Um, or maybe you do. I mean, there's an interesting uh, side commentary there about imbalance and stuff like that, that we could talk about magic if necessary. Anyway, Every, everything falls back on magic eventually with us. So it's okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, the point is if you're going to have a conversation about balance, or if you're going to think very carefully about balance in your game, it's really important that you set the boundaries on the balance of what, because that's going to tell you what factors are important to consider, whether the social factors or whether what you re really need is just a spreadsheet and a little bit of psychology um, and assume that people are robots and they're going to be making, um, you know, optimal decisions and following expected values. Well, ra rational. Yeah. Perfect rational. Rational, rational agents, right? Um, so yeah. uh, so the two parts that Jesse was bringing about, at least two things that we're going to talk about that Jesse just talked about, um, was our differences. So Jesse and I co-designed quite a bit, and we have actually very different ways of coming to balance. Jesse starts from imbalance and works towards balance. I start from balance and work outwards towards chaos um, and in fact it actually works well um, because we both see the value in each other's methodology it just depends who's actually making the cards at the time and typically over the last while it's been jesse because he's figured out the way to do it on squib really quick um, and we'll eventually come to the same point anyway and so in the end it's it's fine and i guess that's kind of a co-design point for all of you out there who want to co-design with somebody is sometimes it's just let the other guy do what they want, and it'll eventually get to the same place anyways. Most likely, it's going to get there. Um, that actually is a function of, uh, well, randomness and, and statistical variance, to be honest, that we're eventually going to get to the same point. It's kind of like Jesse's going from the outside towards the mean, and I start from the mean and kind of go out. Um, and that's just my nature of being kind of a perfectionist. Like, we had this, what was the one that we, uh, or it was pretty funny. I said, okay, Jesse, what cards do we need? And I said, okay, we need a one, two, two, three, 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 four, four, five, five, six, and a, or something like that, right? And Jesse said, yeah, I just throw out the fives. I said, why? He goes, well, just to make it asymmetrical, to see what happens. Yeah. And that's fine. In the end, we kind of found out that that wasn't the necessary way to do it, but neither was mine. So... It was sort of in between both. And that was sort of the kind of the interesting part of it all is that balance really is a function of play uh, more than it's a function of sitting down and mathematically working out everything. And more than it's a function of starting from chaos, uh, eventually I think that play testing is the thing that will lead us towards balance in the end anyway. Um, and I mentioned that in the post about Sushi Go that there there's a lot of those social factors and those nuances that we get and that we have through play activity and decisions that we make in playing and strategies and tactics that we're doing that actually can't be easily accounted for mathematically. Um, so even in poker, I can tell you all the statistical odds off the break, like off the flop, off each card on the river, but that tells you nothing actually about playing the game because human factors will determine whether or not somebody's actually staying in. And people make bad decisions all the time in poker, but they still win because they're beating the psychology of the other human players. And so balanced or not, or if your hand is balanced or not, 
it's a really interesting kind of point to think about, well, that playtesting is actually what gets balanced towards where it should be anyways. Um, and we can talk about the fields versus actual mathematical balance as well. Mm -hmm. So um, Jesse's talking about, uh, you reiterate your first point, Jesse, about overall balance, that it's a feeling. Yeah, so overall balance, I think of the overall balance as a game is a feeling of fairness um, amongst the players. So you come to the end of a game, if everybody feels like no matter what the outcome was, that was fair, uh, we all had a chance, then, uh, then I think the game is balanced. Okay, cool. Um, and I would agree uh, to the most part about that, that uh, balance is when you kind of have that feeling that everything was fair, not necessarily that you can't pinpoint something that, oh, if I had rolled better or if I had drawn a different card, because I think people are going to say that anyway. Um, and my point to bringing back kind of full circle to the idea of the overall feeling is in terms of mathematical swing. So when we talk about perfect balance, I can perfectly balance a deck of cards in like seconds with math. But the problem is that sometimes perfect balance actually doesn't lead to a good game. And that's, I think, where Jesse comes from in terms of asymmetry. That sometimes breaking it just slightly to the left or to the right of the mean actually makes for a more interesting game and actually makes for motivations uh, to be more pronounced. And this sort of goes to the rule that Kevin Nunn always told me, uh, Kevin Nunn being the designer of a bunch of games like Sentinel uh, Tactics, um, Rolling Freight, all those types of games. And he, he once told me, he said, you know what? Why do a plus one when you can do a plus three? Right? And that to me was sort of quintessential to my development as a designer. When if you're going to go big anyways, or you're going to break something anyways, break it a little further than you think you should in order to see and feel the actual effect that's happening. You can always tone it down. That's fine. But in terms of balance, it's actually important to kind of skew it a little bit far to get to the balance point, I think, as opposed to incrementally working up towards it. I'd go a little further and then come back, which is what Jesse does in the first place, I think. I don't know. What do you think? So so, okay, so there's two interesting things in where you were going there, but I'm just going to pick up on the second one. Um, the, the first bit was just talking about the feeling of imbalance and how that creates a more interesting experience, and I think that's true. That's one of the reasons why when we distribute numbers across cards or distribute something within a system when we're designing it, I always will uh, proceed to remove what you identify as some random selection of the numbers or variables uh, to skew the distribution and, and, and make it more like uh, jagged mountains instead of a smooth bell curve. Because um, I think that asymmetry creates surprise. Um, and that that kind of imbalance creates surprise, which creates a different kind of play experience. Kind of and experience. Just, just as a real interesting note there, uh, surprise <laughs> is sort of the number one feeling that gives us that psychological hit of satisfaction. It's like mm -hmm. opening the box is actually the, the highest point of a game for a lot of people, right? It's that surprise, and that's what legacy is, is queuing yeah. into. And also in terms of surprise and things like, you know, dice checking and quote-unquote Ameritrash games where you're looking for that mm -hmm. wild randomness in the dice, right. um, you can actually design that into the cards by doing that asymmetry. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing you got to talking about uh, uh, was seeking balance, was strategies for finding the balance point of a game. Um, <clears throat> and, and you're right that one of the ways that I like to do that is actually by trying to imbalance things intentionally. And usually uh, to 
to use, um, uh, yeah, usually what I do is I overpower stuff on purpose. So if I want to add a new card to a system and I want to see if it's balanced, if it's fair, if it's fun, I want players to use it in the next play test. And the way that I ensure they use it is that whatever feeling I have about how it should be costed or what kind of penalties should be attached to it, I have it. Um, whatever my initial instinct is, oh, this card should cost three to play because it's about a three-powered effect. But if it's a new effect and I want to see how it works, I want to get a good sense of how it affects the overall balance of the system, I would cost it at one. The reason for that is because I want people to actually use it. A playtest in which the new variable or the new thing uh, doesn't get picked up, all that tells you is that players don't value it um, as much as they value the known quantities that are in the rest of the system. If you undercost something, though, or you make it too strong on purpose, you push it on your first playtest, it's definitely going to see play. You might be surprised to find out that it wasn't as powerful as you thought it was and that maybe it's still undercosted. But at least then your playtesters will see that new card and they'll go, oh, this effect is really good. Oh, man, look how cheap it is. I'm totally going to find a way to use that. And then it's going to get used. And you need that data if you're going to be able to assess um, how it affects the overall system. And so that's one reason why I tend to um, imbalance costs and so on and so forth. Uh, when seeking balance, right? You always want to overshoot it. It's going to get you there faster to the, the ideal balance point faster. Yeah, uh, I, I agree that there's there's definitely something to that. When um, when you think about what you just said in terms of player psychology and whether or not they're willing to play things, I mean, that comes down to valuation and quick valuation being a skill, like an actual skill that you have to know mm -hmm. in the card set, in the game, in whatever. Uh, we talk about magic a lot uh, and we think about, okay, um, lightning bolt. Think about lightning bolt, Jesse. What's the cost? Uh, one red. What's what's the do? What is what does it do? Three damage. Is that valuable? Uh, well, lightning bolt for the longest time was the baseline against with which all other cards were evaluated. Um, can like if it uh, one mana becomes equivalent to three damage because of the existence of lightning bolt. That's right. Damage. Yeah. So we're able to evaluate based on a known statistical existence of lightning bolt, right? Yeah. And so evaluation becomes very important for quick and, and actually expedient and smart gameplay. And especially in things like deck building or constructed play. Um, and so yeah. we look at that when we think about things like even games as simple as Sushi Go. Um, you know, what is the value of that card? Why do we want that card over another card? How much is that going to get me? Um, mm -hmm. And with lightning bolt equaling three damage, then we kind of have a baseline. Yeah, that's right. uh, and, and so balancing isn't really about is everything balanced? Because if everything's actually the same, we don't know what's better or not, tactically or strategically. We just don't, because yeah. they cost all the same thing. We actually have to go deeper into the game, which is not problematic. It's just bad for the first players or mm -hmm. the a real novice player who doesn't understand yeah. nuances of a game. Eventually, they might, but they probably will never play the game because they don't get it because everything is very much baseline in the same and so what our job is oftentimes as designers is to really curate that card set to say you want to play this card because it's cheap and powerful you want to get up to this level of card when you're drafting because yep. this is the same effect that you got for three dollars and now you can buy it for two or one or whatever right exactly. so 
I, I think there's a lot more to balance than people think than just numerical balance on a bell curve. As lovely as bell curves are and as much as I use them, that's not really the end result. That for me is a start. And for Jesse, it's closer to the end, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although it never looks like that in the end anyways. Never. Um, but that's because I have a, I have a, a preference for asymmetry anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there was two, again, as always, two things in your, <laughs> in your little thing there that I think are worth highlighting and latching on to. Um, one is uh, about um, honing players' knowledge of the balance of the game, of, of how the system holds together. Um, so I made a note for myself here about um, balance anchors. Yes. Um, so that's what, that's what Lightning Bolt, in a way, was for early Magic, right? It's a very, very simple card. It's a very straightforward cost. One, which is the, the sort of um, the unit that the system operates in, in, in mana. Um, and it, it translates that cost for you into a... Uh, into the most important variable you care about in magic, which is damage to your opponent, right? So your fundamental resource, mana, is translated into the your goal, which is to deal damage, so damage. And so Lightning Bolt becomes this valuation template for new players. You see it, it's easy to understand. Once you understand how the system works, you then get embedded in your mind the idea that one mana needs to be worth at least three damage yes. in order for it to be worth spending it on whatever it is you're spending it on. Um, and so those kinds of anchors are really important to have in a game and to present to players early on. So there's, uh, the next thing is uh, access to the balance or being able to, to play at a higher strategic level often involves understanding the balance and imbalance of the system. So not only do you want anchors, but you want those anchors to be obvious. And so Sushi Go, to go back to the example we started with, has this in the sushi cards, the like basic sushi cards, the ones that are just worth points. They're not yes. fancy set collection. They don't depend on anything anybody does. You grab the sushi and you have one, two, or three points, depending on which yeah, one. Yeah, they are have. basically the lightning bolts of Sushi Go. They are the lightning bolts of Sushi Go. And as soon as you see one of those cards in a hand, you know, to, you know implicitly that whenever I draft a card, I need its expected value to be at least two, preferably, though, better than three. Yes, and there you go with the word expected value. And that's exactly what I'm getting at in terms of valuation. When we have players who don't actually understand expected values of a card's worth, then we have problems with perhaps balance on our end as designers that we didn't do those things that Jesse's talking about in terms of providing an anchor and providing access to kind of, it's almost like you're, you know, lifting the veil of the matrix, right? When yeah. you're showing them that, you know, one red mana equals three damage. So just as a, as a question then, if I was to evaluate flying men, flying men uh, were from Arabian Nights, one blue, one one flying valuation on that compared to lightning bolt. What do you think, Jess? I mean, so now, so, so now you're getting into slightly more complicated situations where you yes, need to be able to, right? Because the in magic, um, the value of a permanent is different than the value of a spell because it depends in part on board state. If it's turn one, if you're the first player and you're dropping a one one flyer, that thing is probably going to pay off more than three damage over the course of the game. Um, if it's mid or late game and your opponent has a 3-3 flyer, probably not worth the mana and the time um, to put that card down. So, uh, the, one mana. 
I know, I know, just bugging you. Right, and this is and this is the ways in which um, it matters what we're talking about when we're talking about balance. Because in the grand scheme, context matters. Right, because in the grand scheme of the game, um, that's still balance, right? The the card doesn't have to be valuable, equally valuable all the time. That's a boring kind of balance, right? It means that things that you do don't really matter. Um, what it matters is that in the sort of full arc of the game, there are moments when these cards have greater value or are useful to play. Um, and that's a way that individual parts of the game um, can, can contribute productively to the, I think it feels a bit weird actually to talk about the balance of a card. I mean, the, the big thing is you want to make sure the card, yeah, when you're talking about the balance of a piece, you want, it, it's more about its usefulness in the grand scheme of the, yes. of the game. Is right? this useful tactically to me now? Right, but is it also not useful in some situations? Yeah, entirely, right? Because right? the way that uh, parts of games become can become imbalanced as a part is when uh, it becomes a dominant strategy. It becomes the or it becomes thing. a useless strategy, vice versa. Or a useless strategy, vice versa, yeah. right? So you, and so, so structurally, in terms of a constructed deck, if we're, if we're again, magic, bad. So if I was to have that constructed deck with, say, um, Flying Men, Right, mm -hmm. and let's say I was just running a flying man deck. This is like a goblin deck. This is very much rushy, you know. One mm -hmm. one mana, one goblin, two mana, three goblins. You know, three mana. I got six goblins. Whatever, um, of various types, because you probably couldn't have that many of the same class. Um, but eventually, if you don't kill your opponent by then, then you're running out of steam because you only have mana and these little mm -hmm. one ones going around. Um, and so you have to construct your deck and, and actually balance your deck for the situational aspect of magic that what if they survive this thing right. and so your, your strategy isn't to be redundant or useless after a certain point it's to be competitive and still be competitive you might have to not you might have to use those cards but um so i mean and that goes to color wheeling as well uh in terms of balance and looking at how to diversify your card set um that kind of stuff is really interesting as well. But let's let's actually go to our, our listener questions, our viewer questions. Uh, somebody wanted us to comment on the Bitcoin price, and I don't know if either of us know anything about that. So go ahead, Jesse, make a comment. Uh, it costs something. Yeah, all right. Uh, Sir Bob asks a uh, balance question. Do you use definitive mathematical power ranking for individual cards? Jesse, what's your answer on that? Well... Um, as we talked about a little bit already, no. Um, my, I, as I had said, I like to create uh, a distribution that looks more like a mountain range and less like a hill. Um, so, and then in testing, I'm focusing more on the feeling that players have. I trust my playtesters' intuitions and feelings more than uh, more than my desire, which, I, as I just said, I don't really have much of a desire, but more than like some desire for a, a mathematical, a rigid mathematical balance point. And so I start from uh, mathematical imbalance, and then I let my playtests tell me how to push things around from that point. And if it ends up um, being a nice mathematical power curve, great. Then that's what the game needed. Uh, but most often it doesn't. Um, so long yeah. answer that. Short answer, no. Yeah, my answer is actually the opposite, of course, because, you know, it's me and Jess. Uh, so I, start, I do start with um, absolutely deciding on 
uh, mathematical values for everything. Like one point of damage costs two, and you know one movement costs six, and blah blah blah. And you add it all together, you come up with this cost. Uh, and that's usually, like I said, that's where I start. And after that, it's a lot of massaging, a lot of massaging through feedback, through play testing, and through swinging things a little bit wide of the fence uh, to say, hey, uh, even though this costs this much, it should feel this way. Um, and so erring on the side of caution, I start balance and then I go wide. And Jesse starts wide and he eventually comes to balance. So like I said, neither way is right or wrong. A lot of it's actually just in our mindset, like how we think as human beings. Um, and uh, I'm more of a divergent thinker. And I don't know if Jesse really is, but I think from one point and then diverge wildly. Um, and Jesse might be more of a convergent thinker. I don't think he is. I'm, I'm just putting words in your mouth. Uh, but that's how I think. So I think I start at one point, but I have to know that point well. Uh, it has to. I have to be anchored in my in my own sense of balance, and then I diverge wildly from there. What do you think, Jess? Are you divergent or convergent as a thinker? I don't know. Are there other options? I don't know. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Probably um, not. No, I'm sure there are. Um, that is just a, that's just one dyad of many in terms of how we think. Uh, Sir Bob also asks, what are the things that are disrupted by imbalance in a game? There are many, but what are the easiest things to destroy in the gaming experience when something's imbalanced? What do you think, Jess? Uh, the satisfaction of a win. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing in risk when, when, when you're dealing with a system with a system balance. Um, is because it's going to take the it's going to take the the achievement of winning away from the winner um, if it comes too easy or it comes too fast. Um, and as for like, I mean, if, if if Sir Bob's trying to get us to to think about sort of specific kinds of things within a game that that can ruin the game experience, I think that's actually a really difficult question. Um, because it's going to depend a lot on the context of the game. Um, so for a good example of this is like the possibility of king making. That's a way to right. have imbalance in a game um, that comes from a game system allowing certain kinds of social behavior to influence the outcome. Um, and so in that way, social behavior can be the, the you, you could identify two different sort of pressure points that are making it possible. Um, either the ability of certain kinds of social conditions to influence the outcome of the game or the fact that the game makes it possible for king making to occur by virtue of the way that players interact with each other mm -hmm. and so you could identify either of those things as things that can significantly throw the balance of a game out of whack in terms of the feeling of fairness of the outcome um but there are games for which king making is sort of part of it and so if king making is part of your game if that's something you want to be in the system, then it's not a balance problem because it's sort of part of the design goals. You want to create that interaction. It's a feature, not a bug. Right? It's a feature, not a bug, right? Yeah. Um, and when you start getting into asymmetry and imbalance, you start moving away from, and the further and further you move away from an abstract, from like a, a symmetrically starting abstract from chess or go like or Chess whatever. or checkers. Right, the further you move away from that, you're moving into different, you're in, including different um, veils or, or um, bits or aspects of asymmetry into your game system, um, then every point of imbalance could be a feature or a bug, depending on what your design goals are, what kinds of like emotions you're trying to create in your players, and what kind of play experience you're trying to to put together. Mm -hmm. So, because if you want to have a really oppressive feeling game where the AI is beating your 
co-op team up, right. it's going to be imbalanced by nature, right? Right. Or like a game, or a game like Millennium Blades, where yeah. part of the fun of that game is flipping a random card off the deck, looking at it, and going, "Holy crap, this is way better than everything I have seen in this game so far." Right? There's imbalances. There are thousands of cards. There's thousands of cards, and there's imbalances in individual cards. There's some cards that are strictly better than other cards. And there's also imbalances in combinations. If you get the right two or three cards together, you're almost unstoppable. Um, but that's kind of part of the fun of Millennium Blades. And the thing that it does, and this is the thing that's important, um, is the game is kind of upfront about that. Like, you know when you sit down to the game and you set it up on the table and someone explains it to you, you know that that's the kind of imbalance that you're in for. And so because the game is clear about that, that imbalance doesn't undermine the feeling of fairness at the end. Yeah, it's sort of like suspending disbelief, right? Yeah. Uh, so you go into a movie uh, like, I don't know, Logan, knowing that you're going to suspend disbelief and understand that he can cut through things with right. his claws that extend from his bones. Right. I mean, I'm more thinking of it as a, I'm more thinking of it as the social contract that you that you are engaging in with sure. the game or the game designer. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and as long as the game is is sort of transparent with you about the kinds of ways that you are not going to be in control of the outcome. Um, then those things aren't going to to make you feel like it was unfair at the end. Yeah, unless you don't like that style of game in the first Absolutely. Place. And right. then don't play it, and that's okay. Right. But that like, has to be transparent up front, right? Unless, otherwise you won't know not to play it. Right, like my vehement dislike of uh, critical misses. Right. Right? Yeah, because um, that's just random crap. Yeah, and that's in, like, every tactical miniatures game I have ever seen. Because of its base, <laughs> right? It's based in Chainmail, right. and that's... Nobody's ever decided to not do it. Exactly, and uh, and it's something that I very much don't like. Um, but it doesn't surprise me because I expect it in all of the games. But still, I mean, that's that's an example of that. Yeah. Um, other things that are easy to destroy in the game experience uh, with imbalance would be exploitation by expert players. Um, so if you have two people who played a game before and you invite a third or fourth people fourth person to play it and they've never played it imbalance can actually really ruin that game for the people who don't know the system because they don't know the exploit especially if it's imbalanced to the point where they can't tell it's imbalanced right where yeah. everything is hard to evaluate that's that's dangerous territory it's actually uh, so i've um the l5r lcg has been announced and i've been uh greedily gobbling up all of the media about it uh and in one of the interviews with the designers they actually talked about a play example from the old l5r that's an example of that um so one of the old problems with l5r which if you don't know legend of the five rings is an old ccg it lived just as long as magic did up until two years ago when aeg sold it to uh Fantasy Flight. Fantasy Flight. And Fantasy Flight's transformed it into an LCG, which is coming out at Gen Con. There's a lot of neat things about it. I actually encourage any designers to go check out. Uh, Team Covenant has an interview with the designers on YouTube. Go check that out. They talk about some of the mechanics. There's some really neat things that they're doing in the game that I think is worth as designers thinking about. Um, anyway, uh, one of the things that they did when they had to develop this new LCG was they obviously had to learn the ins and outs of the old CCG. And only one person on the development team was a, was a player of the game. He was a tournament player, so he was running them through some of his old decks. And he sits down with one of the other developers, and they're playing a game. 
Uh, and the other developer goes, okay, in this board state, what would be a good decision for me? And the designer and the, and the guy who's familiar with the game goes, well, in this situation, you've got more power than me, so you should totally make an attack on one of my provinces. And so the guy goes, all right, I declare an attack on one of your provinces. And then <laughs> so he sends all his guys in, and then he goes... And then the, and the guy who's familiar with L5R goes, good, excellent. That would have been a totally reasonable thing to do under most circumstances, except it turns out that I have this card that you didn't know existed, which I'm now going to play and destroy all your guys. Right. Um, and that both encapsulates the biggest problem with the original L5R, which was that you had to master the whole system before you could even be even remotely close to good at the game. Yeah. Because yep. it was so big, it's this like imbalance between players. Experienced players had such a huge advantage, or the learning curve was really steep. Yeah. Um, uh, it is right, and but it's also an example of what of what you were just talking about as well. Yeah, um, yeah and I guess I guess that kind of comes down. I mean, even things like uh, Battlecon versus Exceed kind of yes. rub me the similar way. Not a good way or a bad way, just oh. similar in that. In my opinion, anyways, Battlecon is much more of a game where knowing and having, um, you know, understandings of the balance of other people is much more important in that game than it is in Exceed. In my limited opinion, I, I don't play either of them that much, but so I can affirm that that's true. My copy of Battlecon, uh, as much as I have collected all of it, hasn't really moved off my shelf in a few years because. Uh, I am better at the game than most of the people I could play with. And so my advantage of knowing how the system works, but also knowing all of the cards really well, all the characters, um, because I was the only person repeatedly playing it, all of my opponents were, were changing because it was just friends that happened to be around, made it so the game wasn't fun for either of us. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Cool. Um, other questions. Niles is asking, um, how about player-created balance? For example, auctions, uh, scaling effects, such as when um, on Small World, where you stack uh, VP on the powers that aren't picked up the first round. What do you think of that? Player-created balance. Your microphone. You're muted. Oh. Sorry, Kita was barking. I forgot yes, that I okay. turned it off. Um, I actually think those mechanisms are excellent tools for uh, safeguarding a system against a whole bunch of different kinds of imbalance. Um, small world often comes to mind when I'm thinking about these things. Because, I mean, the core of the game is this really cool thing where you've got, like, a race and a power, and they just get randomly clipped together, and who knows what you're going to get, right? Mm -hmm. um, and some of those combinations are ridiculously good, and some of them are bonkers bad. Mm -hmm. Like well, I, because the combination came out, right? Because a different one came out, or because the power, the power and the races uh, thing are anti. Yeah, they're just yeah, exactly. The synergies just aren't there, right? You know, it's like this race really likes to hunker down, and this power says go wide. It's mm, I don't see how that's ever going to help me. Um, but I'll but take it if you, there's like twelve coins on it. If there's twelve coins on it, and so when you can take other parts of your system and use them to provide incentives. Uh, to things that players aren't using, it's a way to make sure that the game, uh, I mean, here's the terminology I just thought of, it's sort of active or reactive balance within the game, um, where parts of the system will adapt to the way the players are interacting with each other to ensure that uh, all options or pathways, if they're not viable now, will become viable before the game is over. Mm -hmm. 
And that, that's a good uh, point in terms of multiple paths to victory. The idea of having multiple ways of winning or getting to the same end goal anyways, because um, the currency ends up being similar in terms of victory points or coins or whatever it is. Um, but having ways to do that in different styles can actually help balance your game in terms of if there's only one way and one way only, and you can only ever get that thing in that way, if you can't do that because somebody else blocks you, uh, or if the game is very much zero sum in how it's played, then that balance sort of falls to the wayside. Um, and that how that works in some games, like short two-player games, that'll work fine because that's actually the expected thing. But in a multiplayer game where all interactions become zero sum, then we've got some problems in terms of of well, it'll it'll end up being a runaway leader. Uh, most likely, that'll be the problem. Um, other player-created balance, so it was auctions. One of my favorite auctions uh, as of late was uh, Mad King. Uh, and I know, Jesse, you oh. like that auction system as well, right? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm terrible to play with because I have huge anal over-analysis problems. But I, he really, I, really is terrible to play. King, to Domino, play. King Domino, he spent like 15 minutes when everybody else spent like one. It's an exaggeration, but yes, I did make the game take about 10 minutes longer than it should. Um, and then you taught it the whole, like, next week faster than you've ever played it before. Yes, that's right. Um, but yes, I do know Mad King. Uh, the auction system, I think, is really awesome in that game. Yeah, and so how do you think that is a self-balancing tool, or a player-balanced tool, so socially contracted balance? Uh, how do I see that auction system as a balance tool? Or any it, auction system, really. Yeah. Um, well, some auction systems can be imbalanced because they can have that experience yes. player, player uh, favoring. So, But that's, um, that's in terms of valuation of set or whatever you're yes. collecting, right? And that's, yes, that's not right. necessarily... It's tied to the auction mechanic, but yeah. it's not really about the auction mechanic. It's about the idea, no. and this is the, the early anchor and early accessibility thing that you're talking about, that if a player does not know what an auctioned item is worth, how do they know what to spend on it? They don't. And so, um, but an auction system of itself, there's often times in the, like the mid nineties when people were talking, oh, auctions, that's lazy design. That's lazy design. And then, but I really don't think it is. I think it's that other part of it that not letting people know how much things are worth. That's the lazy design part. Um, yeah. Sorry, Jess, I cut you off. Go ahead. Oh no, that worked out fine. I actually think auctions are excellent design. Um, they provide, they provide a lot of player interaction. Um, in sort of non-threatening ways, which I think is really valuable in, in board games. We don't always need to be fighting each other. Um, and, in, and in a way, you can have conflict through an auction without it being direct conflict. So actually, that's one of the reasons why I really like auctions. Um, what, the, what the Mad King auction does, and so what's interesting about that one is the active player sets the prices of all of the pieces that you can buy. Then the other players get to pick which ones they're going to buy. And then the active player gets to buy from the leftovers. Um, so what's interesting about that particular auction, as far as balance goes, is it forces the active player to signal what they're interested in or to try and, uh, and, and feign what they're interested in. Um, and so it takes the balance of, of the, the imbalance of the pieces, the fact that this piece is worth a lot more points to me than it is to you, and also a very complex system. Like, it would be a pain in the butt in, in castles if you wanted to analyze what every other player's board state is before you made your decision about what to buy because you wanted to figure out what's best for who. 
Um, what the what the Mad King auction system does is it puts that pressure only on the main on the lead player by setting the value of everything, mm -hmm. and then everybody else because the way you set the value is signaling to everybody else um, in this a way. Is what I, this is kind of what I want. Yeah, I kind of. I kind of want this, or at least I don't want any of you to take this, yeah. right? Like that's what you're saying with the most expensive thing. With the cheapest thing, you're saying, I don't care if anyone takes it. Yeah. Um, and so auctions uh, auctions that have a player, that, that let one player or all players sort of set the values in one way or another um, are interesting because they can, they can actually bring um, bring balance to the social dimensions of, of a game. Yeah. Um, I, I believe so too. I think they they really allow the players to have a direct agency on the balance of the game, um, and it's also balanced within the system in terms of how much money do I have to spend. I can't actually buy that thing for the amount that I set it at, so I can't set it at that. So you also have this intrinsically self-correcting system in a lot of the more modern games that have uh, auctions in them, and really, it is what is it worth to you individually when you're setting the prices so that's yeah. also interesting um i think if if mad king had less of the analyzing everything every turn to find out how much you score on every turn mm. i think it would be a much better game and i love yeah. it as it is so i i mean that's the only criticism i have of that game because the auction system in it is brilliant um other questions niles then asked thought on balancing not through cost so example, so drawing, uh, oh, sorry, adding drawbacks or bonuses to make some things better or worse. Um, and then he also asks, what about designing handicaps into the game? Uh, this seems like it would be really cool, but rarely, rarely featured. Uh, for example, Nations, the board game Nations, uh, allows players to decide at the start of the game how difficult it will to be, be for them by deciding their resources uh, per round. You played nations uh i have not but i have played go and so i do understand handicaps <laughs> right okay perfect right so um what are your thoughts on both those things so drawbacks okay. and bonuses to cards or whatever to balance not by actual cost yeah uh, which isn't in fact really a cost um or a bonus or by allowing you to start with a handicap or a declaration of some kind what are your thoughts okay. Uh, so with respect to the first thing, I think, um, first of all, I think you're right that in a way you can, you can boil every part of a game system down to economics and call it a cost. Um, yes. <laughs> that's my point too. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I mean, there is something interesting there, uh, and it has to do with thinking about the balance through usability or usefulness of the cards. So we were talking before about the magic card examples, and I was saying that the balance of a piece of a game is... Uh, about whether or not there are circumstances in, when it, when, in which it is useful and circumstances in which it is not. Right. Um, right. You don't want some uh, action or option in the game to always be the right thing to do, and you also don't want an action or option to always be the worst thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and you can, you can affect that by just having it interact with the economy of your game, if your game has an economy, that is through a cost. Um, or you can affect it through things like drawbacks and opportunity costs. So that's what worker placement games do. Um, there may be better action spaces, but, but, but because of the way that we select them and the fact that we block each other from them, um, 
my decision to go for the better one means that I'm giving up the opportunity to go for a bunch of other ones. Yeah, and I think opportunity cost will will play into a lot of balancing situations. Those are the things we're going to see in-game, right? Not when we're designing the card set, but right. in-game. Yeah, and so I think if you're if you're wondering, like, how might I find a way to balance this thing? I can't possibly adjust its cost. I, for some reason, can't give it a drawback or an advantage. I think you just need to step back and ask yourself, how can I change the situations in which it's useful and the situations in which it's not? And right. make sure that there are some of both. Yeah, because, I mean, if you think about, oh, again, back to magic. If you think about the power nine, think about the power nine and think about a situation where you would not put that in a constructed deck if exactly. you were allowed to. You would you would always put the power nine yes. in your deck, always, because there's no situation under which in kind of any rule set that magic has ever had that the power nine would not put you at an immediate advantage. Like immediately. Yeah. So don't make the power nine is what we're telling you. Right, but, but also I, don't also don't make really sucky cards because yeah. they don't get they don't ever get played. But I think Niles Niles is right to to draw attention to the fact that you don't only have one variable to to manipulate with with balance, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's can, definitely true. As as long as whatever you change about the card or the worker placement spot or the mechanics in your game is affecting the sort of universe of game states in which that action or card is useful in the universe of game states in which it's not, then you're affecting its balance. Yeah. Um, the question that he asks about handicaps to the game, so starting okay. off with a handicap. Uh, so tell me about your Go experience. I'm a terrible Go player. I didn't play it for well, very long. <laughs> but it, it's more that, I mean, one of the cool things about Go is that it has this really neat handicapping system um, where you just start with extra pieces on the board in specific locations, right? Like key, there's key locations of the board um, that normally early and mid game is spent fighting over. And the way the game handicaps is if you are a better player than me, we figure out roughly how much better. And then I put some pieces on the board in specific spots uh, to ensure that it's kind of fair. Right. Um, and what's interesting about making and like putting these kinds of mechanisms into a game is one, you need to give your players a way of establishing their relative skill uh, in order to have good handicaps. You, <laughs> sorry, dogs are both fighting and Talon has picked up a roll of uh, wrapping paper and is using it as a sword. Um, That's what you get for teaching your dog how to use swords, by the way. I, he's a good swordsman. Um, but then you also need to uh, like have a system that that lets you build in handicaps. So it sounds uh, it sounds like Nations has that, and that's neat. Um, the neatest thing, though, that I've seen, and I can't think of a game offhand that, that does this, but I know games certainly do, and may maybe you'll know one, um, is when players, so you have like an asymmetric game where one player, where players are gonna have like different starting positions and different goals, uh, and players can bid on who's gonna play which role by saying, oh, I can, I, can, I can beat you with only 10 starting resources. I can win this game, and so I want to play the, the king. And then someone else is like, yep. no, 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 no. I can be the king because I can do it in nine resources because you guys all suck. Um, and, and those, I think that that is like a really cool way to, 
to start off an asymmetric game. Um, and that's a sort of player set balance kind of thing, right? So at a certain point, someone says, yeah, I can do it in five. And everyone's like, you're crazy. You can have it. And I, so anyway. I'm yeah, those kind of those, that. and again, those are self-balancing from a player perspective. But in the idea, in the idea of a handicap, um, you yeah. know, we do this all the time in contract, contract bridge, um, anything where you're we're set, setting number of bids that you can take, um, or a number of tricks or that you can take in a bidding type style game like Wizard, um, and so I think those are again intrinsically self-balancing within the context of the game you're playing right now, mm -hmm. and. I think that's an important way to think about how can we balance better players versus worse players, or how can we better how can we balance a set of cards that is unbalanced mm -hmm. by it in and of itself. And you look at the cards and you say, oh, based on this kind of cards, I think I'm going to take everything. I'm going to win this whole game right now uh, because I have all these really hyper unbalanced cards, um, and that might be actually kind of fun yeah. in a way to be able to. Make a call and say, "I think I'm going to get this." Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a neat challenge to actually do. That's there's another design yeah. challenge is betting where that happens. Yeah, betting. It's basically betting, right? Yeah, um, betting like auctions is a way to um, use social factors to balance games because um, it's it's going to vary by the group and vary by each other's assessment of each other's skills and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And there's um, a there's a real meta to it as well, right? Yeah. Did he ever shoot the moon before? Because if he did, right. then maybe he'll do it again or I don't believe that guy cuz he's always lying and we played 10 games with him of this and he lies every game, right? Yeah. So I, there's some neat factors in there that make the game more than just the numbers on the card. Um mm -hmm. Oh, wow, we ran out of questions from Niles. Niles asked more. Oh, uh, Niles has a, another point here that uh, he says mm -hmm. that a particularly good use for handicaps is when adults play with children. And obviously, that's a, a good way of, of using that to help the child learn the system competitively within the structures of the rules, but then they would have maybe a different win condition. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, <laughs> it's funny. So. We were talking about uh, Battlestar. Galactica Express and Evan Derek is just messaging me right now saying that his life is like a dumpster fire. He just sent me a gif of a, a burning dumpster. Poor Evan. Poor Evan. But if you haven't played BSD um, Express, go get Dark Moon from Stronghold Games, designed by Evan Derek, and yeah. you can see what a good game it is. Yeah, it is a really good one. I, I actually like that one as an example of uh, taking big games and making them into funner dice games. Um, I don't like. Battlestar Galactica very much, but I like Battlestar Galactica Express. Um, just uh, on the topic of balance, though, since Niles has run a set of questions, one thing that we haven't <laughs> talked about, um, since we're talking about balance at all different kinds of levels, right? Overall game yes. balance and then balance of parts. Uh, and then there's an intermediate level we got on a little bit with auctions and things like small worlds, uh, things that you don't choose to do become more valuable. Uh, mechanism is... Uh, things that get put often into Euro-y style games um, to ensure that the game, that that feeling of fairness I was talking about, isn't yep. just a feeling you have at the end of the game, but is persistent throughout. Yes, that that I'll agree with. That's that's a I think that's a better way of looking at it, Jess. So, well, I, I think there are actually two different goals, right? So you sure. could okay. like, right? So 
Um, not all games are such that they feel like they're fair all the way through. Some games, at some point in the middle of the game, you look at the board state, and if you're sufficiently sophisticated in understanding the game, you go, I'm out of it. Yeah, that's not great. It depends on the game. It depends on the social yes. contract you signed up for when you started and how long it is. If, yes. if we're playing Dominant Species, and this is the hour one of three, and let's, I realize that I'm just not the game, let's just not play. Maybe, maybe that's not good. Um, if the game's only going to go on for five or six more minutes or ten more minutes, or there's something interesting for me to do, like beat my old previous score or see how well I can, uh, I can hold things together, then then the fact that I'm out of the game may not itself be a problem. But it is certainly like a Euro-y design principle, um, I, either implicit or explicit, uh, but it's at least common to a lot of sort of Euro-class games that the game, feel, like every player feels like they're in it right up until near the very end. Mm -hmm. And there are specific mechanics that make these things happen. Um, yeah. And they're different than the things that we've talked about before. They're things... I was just going to mention that. <laughs> yeah. So they're things like rubber banding. Um, which is when you've got game mechanics that force scores to continue to snap together so that players don't get too far apart from each other. So we talked about this a bit. Uh, I, I don't know if Belfort actually is a good example of it because of the second kind of thing. I think Belfort's actually the second thing, which is headwinds. Um, yeah. Which is the more you win, the more resistance the game puts on you. So Belfort yeah. does this by the increasing tax based on your score. But the primary example of this uh, is Dominion. <laughs> where the victory points clog up your deck. They ruin what made you get them in the first place, right? You got victory points because your deck was smooth and working well, and by achieving them, your deck is now clogged up in crap. Um, and so that's a form of headwind, right? The, by working towards winning, you get slowed down. Um, and then there's also uh, catch-up mechanics or slingshots, um, which is when you fall back, when players fall back in score, uh, or are not doing as well as other players, there's some part of the game system that will help them jump back into the race um, if they can do things well. Um, <clears throat> so, and these are all interesting things to think about from a design perspective, because on one hand, it's a, it's a toolbox of strategies for making games uh, can like feel fun all the way throughout, because everybody feels like they're in it to win it, because they, they feel like they can win it. Um, but there are also things that you can leverage as a designer uh, to do sort of creative and interesting things uh, to game experiences, to make players discover unexpected strategies. Mm -hmm. uh, Gosu is my favorite example of this with slingshots. Right. Um, the original Gosu, uh, the way cards worked is they have an effect, and then there's, uh, for numbers on the card, there's a second number in brackets, like a plus one or a plus two. Right, you only, right, right. You only get the bracketed bonus if you're in last place. Right, right. Yes, I remember that now, yeah. But the bracketed bonus is, like, equivalent to Kevin Nunn's why add one when you can add three. Yeah, they're um, quite big. They're really big. Like, they often... And trip, they often make cards three times as effective. It's like draw one or draw three. Um, and so what happens is you play a couple games of Gosu and you realize the catch-up mechanic is not a catch-up mechanic. It's a strategy. Yes. You and want once, to come from behind. That's right. And so high-level Gosu play has this like really interesting thing where what you're trying to do is you're trying to lose the first round by as little as possible. Yeah, because you want to you want to gain that bonus, but you don't want to yeah, be too far behind. That your bonus doesn't matter. That's right. So you want to stay really close to your opponent's board state, but you don't want to win. You want to lose. And it definitely makes a two player game a go to different than like a three or four player game. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're different beasts. They're very different beasts. Yeah. Um, yeah, because in multiplayer goes to, it's actually possible not to be 
losing because you have to have exactly the lowest points, not yeah. tied for lowest. Yeah. So, so anyway, yeah. I mean, yeah, and it, it makes you wonder too, as a designer. I mean, in terms of design challenges, is there a way to to turn a rubber banding mechanic into a strategy, um, or to turn a headwinds mechanic into a strategy? Could you imagine a game where in which you give opponents victory points because you expect that to set them back more in the long run than the actual cost, than yeah, the actual or cost. impede them in some way, right? Right, um, and that would be a way to turn headwinds into a strategy, right? Um, no. I'm going to give you... And, and a lot of times, I mean, there might be market demand, market systems that work that way as well with yeah. supply demand type things. Like if you have the most, then we're not going to give you much for it. So we can use that on a major scale in terms of overall victory points. We can do that on a micro scale in terms of individual resources or whatever. So there's a lot of neat ways to use those types of systems to balance a game uh, that isn't just social, isn't just numerical. It's more game state. Uh, and that's actually a really interesting way of looking at things as well. Because uh, we are just actually working on a problem with the rest of the game artisans um, on Josh's um, game. I don't even know the name of it, but he was talking about the distribution of cards in a system and balancing for player count uh, and really doing yes. that well. And that was interesting because at the end of it, it's like statistically, the, the percentage chance of you drawing a card is exactly the same kind of no matter how well from a two player to a four player it's statistically the same if you cut the deck in half exactly by distribution the problem is that there's so many other nuances in the game like is the card size is the hand size different between two players and four players is the trading allowed all these questions that you have to answer to see is this really balanced or imbalanced and does player count matter so what are your thoughts on balancing for player count just off the top of your head jess oh god it's misery um Balancing for player count is, uh, or scaling is the other way I like to think of it, um, is I think one of the most challenging things to tackle when you have a designed game on the table. When you're trying to get that like last 5% of development done with something, scaling a game is really hard. Um, we often design for specific player counts. Uh, sometimes it's player counts of opportunity. I just happen to only be able to play test this game with three people. And so it's become a very good game for three. Uh, and, now, and now I have to figure out, how do I make it work just as well at four, five, six, two? Um, and, some, and some player counts are easier than others to scale between, uh, in part because of social dimensions, but also in part because of how your game systems likely click together when you add new players to them, uh, yeah. which is why it is a rare unicorn to have a game that is just as good at two as it is at any other player count. Yeah, and um, so you'll, you'll see that a lot with de de card-based games where your deck size really matters because distribution of cards matters, number, number of reshuffles matters, and you have to do things like, okay, what's the highest number of cards that can possibly be in the deck and out of the deck at exactly the same time? And that's actually where your statistical, math, your mathematical uh, equations should start from, uh, is how many cards are out of the hand, how many cards are in the hand, and then what? It's a, then what is your balance? What happens in the first draw actually doesn't really matter that much, or as much as you think it might. It's everything that happens past the first draw. How many cards are going to get discarded from the hand? Does that leave us enough cards to actually make a new hand for everybody to draw from? If not, then what are we doing? And now we have to rebalance that whole deck again. So, number of player count. Uh, player count's a big deal. Um, and 
that's actually a real big deal for a publisher too. So, yeah. um, five players, man. What? Five players. It's like the magic. Uh, it's the magic number that that uh, is super hard to hit. Yeah, seven Scale. players is hard to scaling through five though, right? A lot of games are two to four. Yeah. Or or like three to seven. Yeah. But those yeah. those those games that that cross over into the five player zone are rare. It's very yeah. Uh, so Niles was asking again about about chance, and one thing I'll say about balancing for chance is uh, anything that affects everybody is great. Anything that affects just one person sucks. Uh, and so things like uh, so two player Catan. If you're playing the two player card game uh, for Settlers of Catan, what happens is you roll a die and everybody gets affected by it. But even if you draw a card, a lot of times everybody's affected by that too because there's only two people so it's not really that much of a, a thing to swing it but that kind of stuff where you have those sort of uh effects they're balanced more by or they're really prevented by you building in an intelligent way as opposed to luck so you know in the deck in the game that there's going to be um plagues or something uh, yeah disease and you need an aqueduct for that so you should probably build an aqueduct at some point. Um, and so a lot of the game uh, of that type isn't really the idea of, oh, it was unfair and unbalanced because only I got affected by it. Um, we're both affected by everything equally. I just happened to have a garrison to protect my seven resources, and you didn't, so you lost them to the bandits or the thieves or the barbarians or whatever it is. And that's fine. As long as it affects everybody equally, that seems to be more palatable for most people. Um, when you draw a card and just hammers you, that's when it starts to feel like unfair. It starts feeling like the game is playing against you. Um, and that's not a good feeling. What do you yeah. think about chance, Jesse? Other other thoughts on chance just to round out the show? Right. I mean, like, yeah, as I, as I said much earlier, um, I think that chance is balanced at least in the overall sense of the game balance, the feeling of fairness when all players are subject to the same kind of chance. Um, in your example, it's like negative drawbacks. Everybody suffers the same thing or the same degree of thing. If every turn you're drawing a bad stuff card at the start of your turn and everybody's getting a unique one every turn, that can be fine as long as the impact of those bad stuff cards are the same, mm -hmm. right? Um, I don't want... Like, I'm going to feel like it's unfair if I draw my bad stuff card and I lose six armies and you draw your bad stuff card um, and, you know, it causes you to lose two gold when armies cost four gold, right? right. Like, there's a huge disparity in terms of how much we suffered from that. Um, and so that's not cool. So you want to subject players to the sort of same degree and the same impact of chance. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's nice, and and if you if you don't have a lot, is it because you're playing with chance? If you don't have a lot of control over the impact, it's possible to roll a critical miss, for instance. <laughs> um, then one thing you can do to soften the feeling of unfairness, uh, to make the perceived balance of the game come back, uh, like come through for the players, uh, is to give players the ability to have control over it. So not just saying, "Look, guys." you might get a critical miss in like the social contract stage of the game, but to give players the ability to uh, prepare for the possibility of a critical miss. Yeah, or, or, or mitigate. 
And then you can spend some resources to make a portion of your attack guaranteed, even if you get a critical miss. So this thing will happen no matter what roll. Oh, I missed. That's okay. I got the this thing. I paid extra for that. Um, or give players ways to mitigate the luck. Um, roll two dice, like advantage in D and D, right? Like mm -hmm. roll two dice and take the better. If you're gonna get, a, if you're if you're making a critical attack, it's really important then that you try to get advantage because it helps mitigate that uh, bad luck. You should probably use your your story point, or whatever right. it's called. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Inspiration. I can't you remember. Could use your inspiration. Um, exactly. So if you can't if you can't make sure the impact of bad luck is uh, is going to be the same every time, then give players control over the bad luck. Let them prepare for it. Yeah, give them the um, tools to be active agents in their own success or demise. There, there's a buzzwordy way to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm good at. Buzzwords, buzz. Yeah. All right. So it is. Eight minutes after four. Oh my god! Just kidding. Uh, we're just going off. Last time I worked for you. I know, right? Uh, so um, we're gonna say goodbye because that's about all the time we have. My kids are home. I gotta feed them before they have to do various kid things like violin and karate and stuff like that. Uh, Jesse, I will see you later tonight. Yep. We're going to be at the Cardboard Cafe. If anybody's in remotely around the London, Ontario area, uh, please do come down to the Cardboard Cafe. We're there almost every Thursday night uh, testing games and love to see you if you're around. Uh, but other than that, Jesse, any final words to new designers out there about balance? Yeah. Um, listen to your playtesters when they tell you about things feeling fair or unfair. Those are your cues about the balance of your game. Uh, don't be rigidly committed to the sophistication of your mathematical formulas and your algorithms and your spreadsheets. And what really matters at the end of the day for the balance of the game is how it feels in play. Yeah, that's a great point. It's a good place to start from. It's a bad place to end. Not necessarily bad. It just, like Jesse says, don't be beholden to it. Listen to the testers. They have valuable input. Um, and you're, like I say, almost every show, you're create, curating an experience, an experience for the players. And if they don't like it, you haven't done your job. No matter what the math says, right? Yeah, that's right. All right. So, Jesse, say goodbye. Bye. Bye, guys. We'll see you later. Have a good week. If you have any questions, be sure to hit us up. Oh, next week, Daryl and I will most likely, I'm not sure if we're going to be allowed, but we're going to live stream, if possible, from Lion Rampant Imports in Brantford, Ontario, which is one of the biggest distributors in Canada for board games and hobby games and stuff. So hopefully that's where we're going to be. He's going to be there as uh, representing IDW, of course, and I'll be there representing uh, myself. A cool person? I don't know. We'll see. But we'll show you, uh, hopefully get to show you what Lion Rampant is all about and what their day is about, which is really cool. So other than that, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, please do get at us at, uh, at Meeple Syrup on Twitter or email us on all those email contact things or on the YouTube feed, whatever. We'll get your message. We'll get back to you. Uh, and if you have any questions or any future guests you want to see, any questions you have want to answer, like what is... Well, balance. That's what we did today. If you have another thing, let us know and we'll get on it. All right. We'll see you later. See ya from Bye. Canada. Woo.